I think, well, a lot of thoughts. I mean, the current regulatory environment, I agree that industry players have done the wrong things with people's data. However, the unintended consequence of all this regulation is to further kingmake Google, Amazon, and Facebook, right? And so in the absence of vast first-party data sets, you really can't compete anymore in advertising. And so I actually think I'm a bit of a contrarian. I think people were very down on MarTech. I mean, I'm a MarTech guy by background. I've made, you know, had a lot of really good investments in MarTech. And I actually think there's a huge opportunity now in MarTech with this new paradigm evolving where, you know, the tracker cookie is gone, right? I mean, it's not gone yet, but it's effectively gone. So you have tens of billions of dollars of spend, which hinge on that infrastructure. What's it all going to do? Where's it all going to go? And so I think that's actually a very large opportunity. And I do think on a go-forward basis, that some regulation is a good thing. I mean, Facebook obviously can't be shooting my data around to third parties at their whim. Well, I think we have, I think the world has to be very careful here because I'm a huge believer in a lot of un, unintended consequences. And I think if we're not careful, we're just going to make competing in the advertising world against these giants even harder than it already is today. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm fs, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm fs. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Are you a founder looking to raise money but struggling to get traction? Investors see hundreds of decks a week. Trust me. If your pitch deck isn't hitting home, I've got good news. I've put together a free step-by-step guide with killer examples to create the perfect elevator pitch and pitch deck that VCs can't ignore. You can grab it for free at mattward.io elevator if you're in the market for venture dollars and want to make sure you get the meeting. And if you need more help with your delivery or VCs keep passing on your company, I offer one-on-one pitch deck critiques and coaching to help you close your round fast. Just visit mattward.io slash pitch for more details. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Guys, money talks, and today we're talking money. We're talking venture bubbles, trade war, tech investing, 2020s. We've got Chip Meekham on the program. He's the founder and managing partner of Tribeca Venture Partners. 
Prior to that, he worked at both Kodiak Venture Partners and DFJ Gotham, and he's focused on investing in the companies that are creating the future that we all want to see and the one where we'll have them. And he's focused on investing in the companies that transform the future. In today's episode, we discuss how quantum computing will change the world forever, where Chip sees the biggest areas and opportunities to invest in, why companies like Uber and DoorDash are such a powerful democratizing force, what does the future of the economy look like? Are we in a VC bubble and what happens next? What's up with IPOs and where we headed in the 2020s? And why Chip isn't a fan of encryption and believes platforms should police themselves. This one was an interesting one from someone on the other side of the table. And I hope that other side of the table helps you guys, both in your careers, in your startups, and in the work that you're doing to understand how you can position yourself for a bigger, more impactful future. Because oftentimes, money is the ultimate drug and can help you get there faster. So now, without further ado, I give you Chip Meekum. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Venture investing out of Tribeca. What's the what's the quick 30,000 foot story? How'd you get here? So, uh... Well, I'll give you my background very quickly, then kind of feeds up the Tribeca. So I grew up in the New York area. I went to Cornell undergrad, graduated in 93, actually worked a couple of years in consumer products. And then I discovered this thing called the internet, uh, joined a buddy from Cornell and started one of the early uh, ad tech companies here in New York. So I started essentially the first small site aggregation ad network. Uh, it was called the Commonwealth Network. And that thing put it up in 96. By late 97, we had like 40,000 sites generating, you know, 10 to 20 million unique hosts. Uh, per day, which at that point was like every machine on, on the internet in the U.S. Uh, scaled that, long story, t- put it into like four words was, did a bunch of mergers, formed a company called 24-7 Media, which went public in 98, went to Columbia Business School after that, and went to the venture side after that. So a couple of different platforms, but all doing early stage New York tech. And then my partner here at Tribeca, Brian Hirsch, and I had known each other for a long time. And it was just that kind of node in our careers where it lined up. We saw a very basic opportunity, which was you know, back then, New York was emerging and now kind of very clearly the, kind of the number two market for tech innovation and um, saw an opportunity to build kind of a purpose-built NYC VC brand uh, called the Tribeca Venture Partners. And here we are. Why in God's name did you go to business school after IPOing? You know, I was, um, maybe I had a overly, not naive, but you know, I remember having finance people and all these people in rooms that were working for me. And I really had no idea what they were talking about. You know, I was a history major undergrad and... I don't know. I had never had any business training whatsoever. Plus, in 1998, I actually did a short stint at an e-commerce company, and I could just see the crash coming. And you know, I had gotten to school. I had deferred it once. It was just that moment in my life where I was either going to go then or I was never going to go. And so I went. It was actually a great experience, as always. Okay, fair point. Fair point. So you were really early in advertising. Let's let's start there. Advertising is the is the eyeball economy the root of all evil. You know, it's not the root of all evil. It is the root, pretty much, of most content. So it kind of is what it is. You know, we've all we've sort of lived a bunch of grand bargains, right? If you think about TV, you really traded your time for content, right? In terms of looking at advertising, and then you got to you know display advertising where you traded a little bit of distraction for content, and then we got to search where you traded intent, then we got to social where you traded data. And I don't know, I don't think that's terrible trade, but um, you know, early, early days, I mean, I was literally trying to sell banner ads to P&G in 1996. You know, I was only like 10 years ahead of the curve. Uh, so <laughs> the early days, it was not easy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's changed so much since then. And I do agree with you. It is definitely the, 
It's definitely the compromise that we've made. Do you think it's one that's dangerous going forward? I think in some ways it is, and in some ways it's inevitable. Yeah, I think, well, a lot of thoughts. I mean, the current regulatory environment, I agree that industry players have done the wrong things with people's data. However, the unintended consequence of all this regulation is to further kingmake Google, Amazon, and Facebook, right? And so in the absence of vast first-party data sets, you really can't compete anymore in advertising. And so I actually think I'm a bit of a contrarian. I think people are very down on MarTech. I mean, I'm a MarTech guy by background. I've made, you know, had a lot of really good investments in MarTech. And I actually think there's a huge opportunity now in MarTech with this new paradigm evolving where, you know, the tracker cookie is gone, right? I mean, it's not gone yet, but it's effectively gone. So you have tens of billions of dollars of spend, which hinge on that infrastructure. What's it all going to do? Where's it all going to go? And so I think that's actually a very large opportunity. And I do think on a go forward basis that some regulation is a good thing. I mean, Facebook obviously can't be shooting my data around to third parties at their whim. Well, I think we have, I think the world has to be very careful here because I'm a huge believer in a lot of un- unintended consequences. And I think if we're not careful, we're just going to make competing in the advertising world against these giants even harder than it already is today. Which is terrifying because the advertising world is really what most of the the world is based off of. So it would also be all of the platforms and all of the everything trying yeah, to compete and, at anything. You know, and, 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 you know, I look at my, you know, our portfolio and B2C companies we work with. Listen, the reason that all the ad spend is going to Google and Facebook isn't because everybody loves Google and Facebook. It's because they are the most efficient customer acquisition channel. Full stop, right? It just is. And so until other people can break that and provide a better and or Amazon's hugely, I mean, Amazon is a bit of a different animal in that Amazon's advertising is really effectively a marketplace business, right? Where they just figured out that when you search for something on Amazon, they make just as much money and or more money and definitely more profit margin by, by collecting an affiliate fee from and or an advertising stream from a third party seller. It's actually a better business than having distribution centers all over the country and having to ship shit around. So that's a slightly different animal. Um, but listen, the goal pin or the goal post rather is if you think about the advertising world, and I've been involved with contextual companies and location based and, you know, AppNexus, large third party data platform, et cetera, et cetera. All of these medium up to and including television, you know, why does Mercedes Benz advertise on the PGA on Sunday afternoon? Because they think their target market is there. Well, everybody else is trying to create a proxy for intent, contextual data, behavioral data, blah, blah, blah. With Google, you just tell them what you want. (laughs) There's no proxy for intent. You declare your intent and your desire, and then they serve you content and ads. And in fact, you don't really care if the best thing to you is an ad. You don't care. It's the best content. So you click it. I mean, it's so so beautifully simple. It's, it's, It's the greatest free cash flow pump ever invented by man. When do you think or do you think Amazon will surpass either of the other two and become the dominant ad spend in the U.S.? Barring some really, you know, barring an exogenous regulatory event that I can't predict, I think um, they don't overpass them. But I think you have uh, not three equal size players. If I had to force rank them, I think the force ranking kind of stays Google, Facebook, Amazon, but they become such on the current trajectory. There's such a large share of the overall market that, believe me, being number three in that list is a highly lucrative position. And realize that, you know, Amazon's advertising business is essentially a data fumes business, right? They, they, they're not really doing that much more 
to have an advertising business. You got to have ad salespeople. You got to have infrastructure. I'm oversimplifying, but they almost don't even need the ad salespeople. The the, the brands know they need it. Yeah. I mean, if you're selling soap and you want to reach people who are, who are trying to buy soap, buying the keyword soap on Amazon is a pretty good bet (laughs) because it's even better than Google because on Google, they could be researching soap ingredients. They could be, you know, doing something else with soap on Amazon. You're pretty damn sure they're buying soap. So yeah, it's uh, and I think for what it's worth, Amazon is, if you had predicted even 10 years ago, it's actually a little bit longer now, 10 make it it's easy, that there be a dominant cloud computing company in the world. I think very few people, probably have to go up 15 years, very few people would have predicted Amazon, right? So really an amazing company in a lot of ways. If you had to put all of your money into one public company that wasn't Amazon, because I think Amazon's the easy choice at this point, who would it be and why? You know, it's, it's, First of all, I'm, I'm a diversified investor. I would never do that. But um, second of all, I actually think to this day, it's Google. I think it's a, at this point, it's a fairly classic entry preemption market structure where the cost and complexity to enter that market in a way to actually challenge Google is so high versus the rent that you could actually extract from the system. I don't think it's doable until, until some major paradigm shift. Um, I don't know. I mean, think about it. Microsoft turned its full corporate might uh, to really support Bing, and their goal was to get to twenty percent share, and they failed. Pretty tough. Um, pretty pretty but, tough. Assuming it stays search, but what what do you think about the future of voice technology? I would get pretty damn pissed if I was using voice to use Google. I'd personally, just from the privacy, but also if the first five things that Alexa or Google read off to me are an ad, I'm not going to be happy. Yeah, I, I think to me, if you think about the sort of tech layers in search. Right, the data entry part of it is very, very thin. Right, it's, it's either voice or text. You know, that's it. All of the complexity lies in indexing the web, semantic analysis. You know, all of that other complex and being being able to do it at web scale all over the planet. You know, that's where response times sub you know twenty millisecond, et cetera, et cetera. That's the complexity. So whether it's voice, text, or your brain, that's I, did, I didn't mean that there. part so much. I meant the output. So. If I'm asking a voice assistant for something and it's reading off ad after ad after ad after ad, that feels a lot more frustrating than just scrolling past the first few stupid ads on Google or having an ad blocker installed on your extensions. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to our our earlier conversation on kind of what is your bargain. I would imagine, and you know, I, I was going to say earlier, by the way, it turns out the simplest bargain is gaining a lot of traction, which is I pay cash for content. <laughs> I mean, you think about all these streaming services, right? I mean, it's cash for content. That's a really easy one. There's no behavioral targeting. There's no cookies. There's no, it's just, I pay X, you give me content. But to your question on voice, I think the the ad unit coming back is it's going to have to have a different form. And I'm not sure what that form is because I agree. You can't say, hey, Siri, I, what's, the best, um, uh, what's the best brand of paper towels? And have Siri, I mean, Siri would have to declare this is an ad and it's bounty. You know, I don't know. It's a, it's a complex question. But I also think everyday life talking, you know, Siri, these things are creeping in. But if you think about just the size and scale of the current desktop and mobile ecosystem, I think we're a long way from those devices having huge traction. I think a far more likely path is the next step is voice. And it's already, this is not insightful. It's already happening. But, you know, voice as the data input overtakes text, but that that is still leveraging a desktop and mobile device environment. And then we move to the assistants and the in-home guys, just from a scale perspective. 
I would agree maybe, but I think that we might even have just predictive purchasing before that and that you have a refrigerator that sees what you're running out of. You've got an Amazon Alexa and it knows, oh, by the way, um, you're going to need this, this and this. Maybe you input a couple of groceries or a couple of different meals that you like and then Amazon starts ordering it for you ahead of time. You don't have to ask. You don't have to go. You don't have to do. Yeah, I, I think that's very and true. That, and that I, scales I quickly. It scales quickly. I also think... If you think about the dramatic expansion of just the service economy, where, I mean, I, I joke, I've got three kids, one in college, a couple at home, and the number of food deliveries that just show up at my house now on the weekends, it's remarkable because the kids, they have the apps, you know, they just order. And to your point, yeah, maybe there's a smart, maybe there's a smart fridge, but in certain levels of you know, the socioeconomic structure, uh, there could just be a service provider who the good old fashioned shows up. <laughs> And and orders what you need because I think that's the thing. What, what what I see is a you know people, particularly on a variable labor basis, when they're willing to work for a piece of the action, are actually a scalable solution. They're hard to manage. It's messy, blah blah blah, but they're pretty scalable actually. Um, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that either. That's an interesting thought exercise. Pretty scalable, pretty pretty easy to get started, and then once you have it, there's decent network effects. Yeah, and that, I mean they're hard they're hard to manage, and they turn over blah 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 blah, but they're you know, they're really, on aggregate, they're really smart and, econo- and economically efficient. So just a thought. Do you think that's the future of the job market, this on-demand economy? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think it's, um, I don't know if it's the future. I think it's a huge part of the future. And Is that a good um, thing or a bad thing? Uh, I think it's a good thing. And listen, I'm a, I, listen, there are all sorts of societal issues that hang off of that and everything else. But on the margin, and, you know, we can talk about Uber's business model or everything else, but on the margin... Somebody who has free time and needs a, w- a flexible work schedule today has hundreds of options that simply didn't exist. And in terms of aggregate economic output, that's a good thing. Now, should those people have benefits and retirements? I, I don't want to get into all that. I just know that on the margin, the ability for people to add more productivity to the economy per unit is a good thing. So should the benefits and all of that be structured into the government with a functional system as opposed to how it is today? Yeah, it's a... It's an interesting question. And I mean, we could go down the rat hole of healthcare and everything else. But yeah, I think there has to be a means for those people to access benefits. And maybe it is in partnership with government. So maybe there's a, a you know, a public private partnership entity that provides that. Listen, I, I've, you know, talking back to the conversation on Amazon, if you look at the scale of Amazon Prime and thought exercise, but why doesn't Amazon become the single payer? In the healthcare system. They're already doing that. They're, yeah, they're like they're like bigger than Medicare. <laughs> yeah, right? they're teaming so, they're teaming up with yeah. they're they're rolling out Amazon healthcare for the employees as step one. Once Amazon productizes something for its internal use, then that's when it starts to yeah. roll it out. I think that's what Bezos yeah. is doing. Yeah. And and that would actually be it by the way, it'd also be a classic example of private markets figuring out a problem when the public when the when the government can't. And I think that makes all the sense in the world. I would agree, and but I, th- that- I think your premise is wrong. So I think I think the actual answer is how how Europe and most of the developed civilized world does it, and that there are certain things that enterprise cannot solve effectively, and those are de- generally collective action problems. Yeah, no, I, I listen. Uh, as I said, we could spend a week on this topic. Healthcare is, is fascinating. It's fascinating that we pay multiples for drugs other than what other countries pay, and we actually do all the art. So we essentially fund the R and D for the planet. If you look at it at very high level, which I don't know, doesn't sound fair to me, but yeah, it's uh, 
and the, but the, uh, it's a cliche, but it's true. There's great healthcare all over the world, but boy, when people need really complicated, hard things done, they still kind of come here if they can, which is an output of supply and demand, you know, because if specialists can make so much money here doing what they do, they tend to be here. But yeah, again, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. We could spend full time on that. <laughs> you can have a high ceiling or a high average. You can't have both. So exactly. And, and like 90% of the dollars that are going to be spent on you in healthcare in your last year of life. But how do you solve that? I mean, it's a, it's a really tough one. Well, that'll be easy. Once, uh, once we have AI overlords, they'll just unplug us. There we go. We saved all, the, we <laughs> saved all the money. So New York City, we were, uh, we were in New York City a few, few weeks, few months back. No scooters yet. New York City and some of the larger cities have done a decent job in terms of resisting, we'll just call it aggressive expansion by certain companies. What are your thoughts? Yeah, listen, I think in New York City, it's very simple. It's just a basic public safety issue. I mean, it's already uh, bad enough that you got to look, no matter which way the traffic's going, you got to look always when crossing in New York because somebody's coming at you with an electric bike, you know, delivering food in some direction, right? So I, I just think, and even the, just the runtime complexities of doing that in New York, I was actually down in Austin, Texas, maybe a month ago or something, and uh, doing some meetings. And I went out for a run along the river early in the morning. And I don't know if you've ever been down there recently, but we have a whole new source of societal detritus, which is abandoned electric scooters. So here you are on this beautiful riverwalk path. I ran probably five or six miles. I literally probably saw 200 derelict scooters tossed in the woods, down the side of the river. It's weird. <laughs> but in New York, it's just population densities and the traffic. And it, I, I don't think it ever, it ever could happen here. Yeah, they're so, I think in a lot of ways, it's the future for a lot of places because it is so convenient and expensive and more economically and sustainably long-term viable. But at the same time, people, when you have, when you have collective goods and everybody has one toilet, no one feels like cleaning it. They just all, all use it and leave it a mess. So venture, one of the things that I want to talk about and that you had brought up as well is how much money is in venture right now? Are we, are we in a bubble? Is there a crash coming? It sure feels like it. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, venture is a very broad category. I think over the last, again, make it easy, 10 years, you've seen a run-up in the amount of late-stage capital, an absolutely unprecedented run-up. And what, ha what happens when you take one side of a marketplace and dramatically increase it without really changing the other side? So if you think about the supply of late-stage dollars, versus the number of high quality companies that can actually take and use those dollars, the supply has dramatically increased. While the number of companies, yeah, it's gone up, but not nearly in correlation. So if the demand side of a market goes up vastly, what happens to price? It increases. And so that's what happened. And, but just as fast as that happens, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, and if you throw in the operating side, 25, the world changes really fast. And I think you can feel uh, particularly at late stage, the market dramatically slowing. And the other trade, which the other you know pendulum, which I've just seen swing back and forth a lot of times is in aggregate, venture investors tend to be enamored with the demand side of the equation, right? So I was around in New York when this thing called Cosmo launched and the guy would bring you a stick of gum for free, right? And guess what? People love that, but you can never make money doing it. And so you've just seen a ton of money flow into these hyper growth stories and it turns out unit economics aren't very good in a lot of them. And so that pendulum is swinging back rapidly as well, where you know, investors are going much more back to fundamental unit economics. 
than they are for just hyper growth at all costs. Which is pretty tough for the venture industry as a whole. If the future is Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, if you don't see them being displaced, there's not going to be a ton of massive home runs. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think, um, listen, obviously, Facebook, Google, I mean, those are just vast outliers, right? Uh, I do think one of the things that we see is, and I can give a great example, our company, ACB Auctions. But it turns out, even in 2020, there are still massive business systems effectively untouched by technology. And so ACV, um, I mean, a quick version of a long story is the founder came to us. He was literally a used car salesman from Buffalo. And he's like, you know, I'm trying to sell 30 or 40 cars a month. My biggest problem is getting the cars. Because I have to drive to the auction house, bid on the cars. They flatbed truck them back to me. I got to go two or three times a month. Those are days I'm not selling. And he goes, so I just, I built a marketplace app for it. It's called ACV Auction. And so now when you buy a new car and bring your old car to the dealer and trade it in, before ACV, that thing went through a large ecosystem, ended up at a physical auction house. You know, literally these things are like 200 acre fields and people would literally bid on it when it rolled by. Now that dealer opens up ACV Auctions, answers a bunch of questions, takes some pictures, puts in the VIN, blah, 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 clicks auction. And used car dealers subscribe to the auction. They put in the criteria, et cetera, and then they bid. Car clears in 20 minutes, right? So you've taken a two-week, very costly, complex process to a 20-minute point-to-point digital auction. And so the point being, yes, Google, Facebook, et cetera, are, those guys are tough. There's $100 billion a year of wholesale used cars being transacted. Now, I, I can't say with certainty, but I, given the economics that I know, I would say with pretty good certainty that at least 80% of that market is going to be digital within the next five to 10 years. Now, whether it's ACV Auctions or some other company who captures that, that company is going to be a huge valuable company, right? And we see that across a lot of industries where as long as this tech run has been, it's really just starting in a lot of massive business systems. So that's kind of one of the themes we see in our current fund. What industries are you most excited about and why? You know, that's a good question. And I'm going to give you my brutally honest answer. I am a self-declared generalist, right? So again, keep the, keep the uh, analogy consistent. On ACV auctions, I'm not going to tell you that we were doing a deep dive in the wholesale used car market because we weren't. I would tell you that we understand when $100 billion legacy systems get smashed into by cloud and mobile. And so I actually am much more of a, a thematic investor, but not seen by vertical, but seen by disruption. And my other one is people have to talk about sectors. And listen, like I know a lot about MarTech because I'm doing my whole career. We do a lot of fintech businesses here. We do a lot of B2B SaaS, a lot of marketplace models. Actually, my favorite company is a company that's creating a new sector because the really big guys tend to create their own sector. So therefore, focusing on sectors is actually self-defeating. I like it. What about focusing on mission? We've seen a, we've seen a rise in triple bottom line businesses of millennials, founders especially, that want to make an impact in the world. How do you think about those type of companies, returns, possible investments, future, et cetera? Yeah, I think um, so. our company, Common Bond, which is a marketplace for student loan and, and other, other loans, they actually have a social good where for every loan, they write, they fund education uh, in Africa. Uh, by example. And, and the founder it feels very strongly about that, a huge social good. Um, it's also, candidly, a really good marketing angle. You know, our target customer, that is very important for our target customer. And so I think about, listen, it, on a private basis, I do a lot of social good things because that's the right thing to do. On a company basis, every company should be operating responsibly, should be have social good in mind. But I don't think every company has to have a social good mission. I think if companies can leverage social good to their strategic advantage, that's the best of all worlds. Because if you can build it into the system, you sustainably have it happening. Yep. What's some interesting stuff that you've looked at recently? Things that have made you sit up and take 
Uh, so I, I can tell you about the latest investment I just closed. It's, it's an interesting one. It's called Light L, the number one, GHT. Uh, founder is a guy named Zohar Lebkowitz, who was the serial entrepreneur. He's the founder of Amobi, one of the first wireless ad networks, a couple other businesses. But you know, he came to me and, and, and basically said, um, you know, there's a massive problem in society, which is all this toxic online toxic behavior. He's a former Israeli signal intelligence officer had basically kind of got together a bunch of his engineers. And he said, you know what? We've been essentially for 20 years using various computational technologies, now AI, to root out terrorists by looking at signal on different networks. This is the same problem. We have signal over networks. We can analyze a signal and pull pull out bad behavior. And we can do it in a massively scalable way. So you think about Facebook with, I don't know the number. At last I checked, it was 20,000 people in the Philippines monitoring posts. Okay. A, that's really hard. They actually have very high suicide rates. It's actually a very messy thing. But B, looking at one post in the abstract will never solve the problem. So, and it sounds terrible, but this is what the first AI engine that they trained at Light was a pedophile recruitment engine. So the average pedophile recruitment takes six to nine months, right? So one person reading one post can never capture it, right? They pointed that at public WhatsApp groups and found 150,000 active pedophiles and turned it over to Facebook. And you know, there we talk about you take a step back. You know, our approach to venture investing is it's a hit business. Okay, it's about big outcomes. And so when we think about investing, it's in companies that we think you know can change the world, right? Have big outcomes. This one founder is basically looks in the eye and says, "I can stop bad behaviors online." It's a pretty big one. So that one I'm very very interested in right now. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. Today's episode is brought to you guys by Netsuite by Oracle. I know I personally struggle with staying on top of business expenses. And that's even running a small team. I can't even imagine some of the large organizations out there. That's why those guys trust NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system that offers a full picture of your business, everything, one place, finance, inventory, HR, customers, you name it. No more guessing, no more worrying. Run your business like it's a business. Companies like Ring, Hint, Bowl, and Branch, and over 19,000 others trust NetSuite because if you don't have your house in order, it's real hard to build it bigger. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive their free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S, netsuite.com slash disruptors to get that free guide, the seven key strategies to crushing growth for your business. I struggle with managing the numbers. You struggle with managing the numbers. And there's so much more that goes right into running a business. Make sure you've got that top level overview. NetSuite.com slash disrupt. And now on with the episode. How do you think about that balance between self-policing and regulation? We've had some lack of so action, I, to yeah, say the I, least. Yeah, I think what um, what's happening all over the world is this is being regulated. So India, UK, Germany all have legislation either passed or in process basically saying, sorry, Mr. Platform, you can't hide behind. I'm just the platform anymore. Um, and I think it's a pretty regular Evolution. I mean, a much more trivial example, but relevant. Early in the life of eBay, they said, "We're not. We're just the platform. We're not involved in the transaction." Blah 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 blah. Now they have thousands of people working in customer service, getting you know, making sure the transaction is done correctly, et cetera. Because they had to. At some point, it, it couldn't scale without that. And so I think these platforms are faced with. I think it's an inevitability. And, and by the way, it's bigger than the platforms. It's it's Fortnite. Okay, there's a really big problem. Fortnite is a really good communications channel if you're trying to plan a robbery or a terrorist attack is you know you fire up a game you invite your friends and you talk about stuff and there's nobody listening at least not right now so it's 
it's a big, 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 big opportunity. And then listen, you can get it, get on the path of what about encryption. And again, there's a million angles to this. I do think that a, a solution has to exist. And I think it's a corollary to your question, but I think the, the broader question, you know, obviously you had this recent news item with Apple refusing to open up this phone. You know, what do we as a society do about encryption, right? Do we allow all of these platforms to move to encrypted data? And what is that? Yes, it implies that each of us now has fully secure communications, but what's the cost? What's cost the future cost? cost? Yeah, what's the future cost? Versus, and maybe I'm in, in the minority, but I actually think a lot of people feel this way, which is, I don't know, I got nothing to hide. <laughs> I'm a 48 year old. Super dangerous. Super dangerous, though. You've got nothing to hide from who? Yeah, I, I, I don't have anything to hide from anyone. But I think that's a that's actually a major societal question that's happening that's happening right now. Which is, what are we going to do about data encryption and all these communication channels? And honestly, I don't have the answer. But it's a it's a a very deep and thorny question. That one I think is a slippery slope because the best type of leader to have is a. Uh... Uh, what's the term? Not a beneficial dictator, basically like a friendly. Uh, what happens when benevolent? Yes, but what happens when yeah. his son is not so benevolent? And I think going forward, yeah. setting those type of standards where sure you like ex president or ex company, but what happens when well the power gets taken but never gets given back? Yeah, um, I, I, and maybe uh, maybe I'm naive, but I, I think our democracy is is resilient. Although I did, I was kind of putting aside any political thoughts, just as a general thought, you know, I'm like 48, you know, turns out our democracy is only like 250 years old. So I've been alive for like 20% of it, 20, yeah, 20% of it. It's actually in the grand scheme of human history, it's like blink of the eye. So we shouldn't take for granted that it is is resilient. I would agree. And every president has more power than the previous president because none of them give it back. That's always something to think about. Speaking of, what are your thoughts on the trade war and how that affects the venture landscape and startup landscape going forward? I think um, specific to China, it actually has been an interesting trade because, you know, they have have unfair trade practices. It's a statement of fact. We've also been able to add incredible amounts of, of goods and services to our economy at, at, at incredibly low cost. I mean, you know, I love the, the example of why is the iPhone made in the United States is it's simple. And this, this is like Adam Smith stuff of invisible hand. But if you look at Apple, all of the really high paying, high, not all, but the vast majority of the really high paying, high margin jobs are in places like the United States. And what would be considered lower paying jobs are offshore, primarily China. But if you're one of those Chinese workers, you're actually on a really good socioeconomic development path that you wouldn't be on in the absence of the iPhone, right? So I think it's been a good trade. I actually don't disagree that maybe the trade has to change now because it turns out China's like same size and rapidly going to be bigger than our economy. And so I don't, I disagree with some of the tactics, but I think the trade war, I would actually rephrase because trade war, I think there's a, a necessary restructuring. Now, what it implies for venture, you know, I really don't think all those manufacturing jobs are coming here. The reality is, if you think what's happening in practice, it's other economies over there that are spooling up to take in, to, to, to suck up that, uh, that production. And, uh, you know, my other thought, particularly for my early stage investing, is, you know, I was involved with that nexus where the founder, Brian O'Kelly, really created programmatic advertising trading, which is now how 80% of, of, of display was bought and sold. I made that investment. I was on that board for 10 years. Okay. I, when we make a new investment now, I can't tell you what the trade war is going to look like in seven years. I can only look at that business for its fundamentals, its resiliency, its team, et cetera. I just, I almost think 
play that game is too hard as a real estate investor. I would agree with that. Speaking of too hard and playing the long game, what technology or trend are you most worried about and why? So it's a trend and it is the the dichotomy in education and therefore opportunity in this country. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I went to Cornell. My daughter's there. I've made that drive. God, I mean, counting road trips for basketball. I've got hundreds of times. Last time I went, I drove. You drove up. You drive up the highway. You get off, and you go kind of this back road about 40 miles to get to Ithaca. And along the way, you go through some very socioeconomically challenged places. I mean, kids living in mobile homes with trees that have fallen through the roof with a blue tarp. And then you show up in Ithaca, New York, and it's like a, I don't know, maybe a four or five mile diameter bubble of prosperity, you know, with 20,000 kids at Cornell, you know, graduating with, with great advantage in life when 10 miles away, there's a kid in a broken big wheel with a tree through his roof. And, and his education, I don't know for a fact, but I would posit that his education ain't great versus what my kids were exposed to right now. So to me, that is just a massive societal problem. It is also a problem that can be, and I hope will be solved by technology. If you think about education, it's a distribution problem, right? My kids have access to good education because they live in a town with good schools. And what makes good schools are good teachers, good infrastructure? Well, the internet's really good at solving distribution problems, right? And you already see it with online education. I'm not, this is not a new fact, but I think it has to be applied far more broadly to give kids, I mean, there's, I think it's called the Opportunity Atlas. A bunch of researchers literally did the study and said that you can input a kid's uh, zip code and predict his socioeconomic outcome with like, 85% accuracy. It's just not right, right? Uh, so that's a big one that I, I actually think a lot about. and Because I think if you could, you could level the education playing field in this country, you would fundamentally change the country. Fundamentally. So that's an interesting one. I would agree. It's scary how easy it is to predict where someone will end up based off of where they started. A lot of it is also just when kids come into elementary or preschool, the ones from decent backgrounds versus the ones that have been underserved or underprivileged something like 30 to 40,000 less words they've heard in their lifetime. It's hard to it's hard to make up all of that ground plus the continual treadmill plus the fact that the Cornell kids spending the same amount as your trailer costs every year on tuition. It's um yeah, it's it's a big game. Yeah, it's a rigged game. I mean, I actually by the end this morning heard How would you unrig it? How would you unrig it? Technology technology's not a good enough answer. Too many technologists just want to use technology. Technology's a double-edged sword. You could take that kid and when he sits down to go to class, you know, my I'm trying to think of one of my kids who got my kids one of my kids got a great math teacher, okay, algebra, whatever it is. If you can sit that kid down and have that kid virtually be in my kid's class and be taught by my kid's teacher and be able to ask that teacher questions, et cetera, et cetera, that would be a lot better. Now, there's all there's all kinds of union problems and you know, and every I think about, I live up in Westchester County in New York. I forget how many towns there are, but literally every one of these towns has its own police, fire, sanitation, town hall, school board, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the redundant bureaucracy is remarkable. So it's very hard to fight through all that, but put all that aside and just say that kid 10 miles outside of Ithaca now goes to my son's math class. Is he or she better off or, or not? I think the answer is better off. I would say definitely, especially if you had the option to do both. I think it's part of the problem. I think there's other a lot of other things we'd have to address as well, but it's definitely a, a step in the right direction. But I think but I think of course there's a million other problems, but it's a classic example of you can't sacrifice the good for the perfect. Right? Even the situation is so bad that marginal improvement is like relatively exponential. 
in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It's the it's the dichotomy of capitalism in that capitalism is actually an inferior system in terms of what you get. Let's say we lived in a in a, a communist or a socialist society where you have a hammer, I have a I don't have a hammer. Um, let me let me summarize this a better way. If we live in a system where I have to buy a lawnmower and you have to buy a lawnmower and we're neighbors. We both have shitty lawnmowers. If we live in a system where we buy the lawnmower together, we have a way better lawnmower that we ride. And we use it half the time or a third of the time anyways. I think we need to start having those type of shared solutions to create better outcomes. For instance, the shared I teaching, think shared police, etc. I think, by the way, that's an because I, I use that example, lawn care, which was when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of New York. Everybody had a tractor and a handmower. And I spent, you know, hours cutting grass. And then this really powerful economic force called asset pooling took over, which is what's more efficient? Everybody having a thousand dollar tractor and spending four man hours per week cutting their lawn or company has four specialized labor guys, two guys with trimmers, a hand mower and a whatever mower. And they drive around all day cutting lawn. And if you want to make it really efficient, then you let them illegally over the border and then try to send them back. It's um, it's a whole nother can of worms. We don't need to get into that one right now. No, I agree. No, I agree. But I will say this: if you if you like leafy greens and vegetables, and you're kind of pro illegal immigration, whether you know it or not. Yeah, if you, if if you, if you eat food, <laughs> if you don't like mowing your lawn, if you like getting things cheap, all of these things, you kind of have to realize that ignorance is bliss. But when you peel back the when you peel back the curtain, there are people that are doing the things that make your life better. Indeed. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a pretty intense one. Okay, I want a bold, contrarian ten year prediction from you, Chip. Something you believe most around you don't. I have a couple of thoughts on this, and they're kind of like opposite thoughts. So one is I don't know that it's contrarian, but so we have a company called QCI which is a quantum computer company out of Yale. And this is not fiction. I mean, you know, they're working on a functional, it's called a qubit, but it's basically a small scale quantum computer that can then scale up. And uh, if you think about sort of massive technology step functions that loom on the horizon, this is the most massive, right? This is a entirely new computational framework and platform with really, you know, it's not even orders of magnitude above current computation because it's an entirely new framework. Like the best, explanation I heard on, on quantum is take a massively complex, uh, not crossword puzzle, you know, the puzzles where you start to be oh, maze. take a massively complex maze, right? And point the Amazon cloud at it. What it's going to do is iteratively try every single solution until it figures it out, right? Take a quantum computer and point it at the same maze. It'll try every solution simultaneously and get the right one, right? So that's all good. The problem is there are some, again, unintended consequences, like essentially data encryption ceases to exist. Unless you have a data encrypting quantum computer fighting a data decrypting quantum computer, and they're in some sort of massive battle. But I think quantum is actually going to be very real. And it's going to start with very vertical applications and then move to the sort of next general computing platform. My other thought is uh, it is awesome that I can log on to Citibank and pay bills and see my balances. And it's great that I can log on to Amex and do my expenses and all stuff. But the amount of, I mean, I read uh, something that basically it's on the order of 20%, not 2%, 20% of the login attempts on banks' websites are fraudulent. And I, I just wonder if there isn't a point in time here where we have to go backwards for a while, where we have to take all this stuff offline while we figure out a way to better secure it. So I, I forget the name of the book, but there's a great book about you know the expansion west when we first came to this country. 
memory thinks that basically we got here and then sort of linearly expanded from east to west until we got to California. The truth is, like right before the Civil War, kind of like 1840s, we got to like, I don't know, like Texas, Nebraska, that letter. And we ran to these guys called the Comanches. And they kicked the shit out of us for like 40 years and pushed the frontier back several hundred miles. Like it wasn't all, we just go across the country. And I, I think of that analogy a lot when I think about just this vast problem of data security. And, you know, the cost of identity theft are so high. Like, I don't know, is it, maybe I should just go back to cutting checks for a while. <laughs> well, this gets figured out. I, I, now, by the way, I know that's not going to happen, but you asked for a contrarian view. I just, I wonder if there isn't a break point out there that makes us reassess the current sort of e-commerce and e-finance and just, you know, electronic identity framework we're all in. I wouldn't be surprised. I would bet it's probably biometric and that something being inserted into your hand, et cetera, that can check your blood type. Then um, we also get into the dystopian, like, let's say it's a fingerprint thing. Well, let me just take your finger off and then we have my, we have our solution right there. But we will, uh, we will see. I definitely agree with that because things are so accessible, but you don't really fix the problem until the problem rears its head and kills something pretty big. I, I agree, but it's... uh. That is a scary reality out there. Scary reality. Everybody hide your money under your under your mattress and make sure you've got it in dollar bills. No, this is uh this has been a fun one. It's been an interesting one. If you had one thing to leave people with, Chip, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why? That's a, that's a broad question. Um, well, I have actually two thoughts in the, with kids and everything else. I, I I watch human behaviors these days, and I would I would really encourage people to do more living of their life and less recording and publishing the living of their life. It's just a general observation. And then one thing I, I will say for any you know, kind of founders or, or uh, you know, execs out there, the one thing I learned hard way, both being an entrepreneur and now running a firm and being on lots of boards and everything else is you have to vastly over-communicate everything. Because when you're a founder, by definition, it's all in your head. And we humans tend to think that everyone else is like us. And therefore, we infer that everyone knows what's going on in our head. And I remember being in meetings, being like, wait a minute, I thought I just said do this, this, and this, but we're doing that, that, and that. And it wasn't the other people's fault. It was my fault because I wasn't communicating well. And I remember the times, and even we have a small firm here, and even in a small team, things get screwed up. You just have to vastly over-communicate. And I tell that to all my founders and CEOs. It's in your head, okay? But not everyone else is in your head. Over-communicate everything. And I think that's a good just framework to think about. One good one, one more good one, one more good one too, which is I was on a board, actually in a boardroom with a guy named Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary at one point. And he looked at the CEO going through stuff and he just told him, hey, manage from your outbox and not your inbox. And I think about that a lot too, because if you're just in your inbox, by definition, you're reacting to other people. When you're in your outbox, you're being proactive. So I thought that was a really good framework to think about too, which is manage from your outbox. And it comes back to communicating again. You know what happened when you assume it's cliche, but we hear it all the time. It's true. Gotta, you gotta, gotta tell people what they need to know and you gotta say it over and over. Chip, thanks for coming on. Where can people find out more about you, what you do in Tribeca? Uh, we're just at Tribeca VP, VictorPrice.com. VP, so not venture partners. So you just type in Tribeca Venture Partners. Google knows where we are. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I didn't know if that was a reference to names or something. Gotcha, gotcha. No. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on, Chip. Cool. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope this has been a fun one, exploring startups, the venture landscape, and where we all may be headed. It's, uh, it's interesting places either way. And uh, until next time, go make it more interesting. Cheers.
be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.